I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine. This week, we're chatting to Sabine Durrant. Uh, her new novel is Finders Keepers. It's all about Verity, who becomes obsessed with her new neighbour. Now, you can hear how it was inspired by Sabine looking out for rabbits in her back garden. Uh, it's a psychological thriller, and we talk about the genre, how she sticks to the standards of it, and how she likes to, to play with the rules. And you can also hear, very simply, about what she finds difficult when she's storytelling. I find thinking about what to write really hard, but the actual writing I don't find hard at all. What do you mean by thinking about what to write before you've even got going? Yeah, so somebody once said that the best, the best way to write, the easiest way to write, is not to think that you're creating something, but to think that you're describing something that's already happened. You're reporting something that's whatever that already happened I suppose that what really rang a bell with me and so when I'm planning and plotting and thinking what's going to happen now that I find hard more on the way with Sabine Durrant in this week's writer's routine stay there yes welcome along to writer's routine my name's Dan Simpson thank you so much for finding us and streaming us and listening to us and downloading us and subscribing to us it's the show where we have a look inside the working day of the world's best writers. Uh, and we're finishing off a bumper week with Sabine Durrant. Because uh, we, we had the brilliant bonus roundtable on Monday, didn't we? Uh, I hope you really enjoyed that, by the way. Uh, and today we have Sabine. I know I'd said we'd have Mark Grenside on. <laughs> I talked him up more than I've talked up many writers that we've had on before. Uh, but there was a glitch in the recording, uh, best laid plans and all that. So I am working on redoing that in the future. But this week, it leaves the gap open for us to have a brilliant chat with Sabine Durrant. This is her 10th novel, I think. She's written standalones and, and books for teens. And this is her fourth psychological thriller, Finders Keepers. We talk about her very detailed ritual that she takes on, even before she starts writing. As soon as she begins the day, you can find out what she does before she even sits down. Also, we talk about how she figures out what she wants to do every day. Uh, and we chat about how her routine has changed through time and what she needs to know before she starts off a story. Now, before we get into it, just a little bit of background. Right before I was chatting to Sabine, uh, I had a bit of a faff buying a Robert Harris book online. Not his fault at all. Nothing to do with him, uh, just my own. 
I ordered it to the wrong address, you see. So I was in a bit of a fluster chatting to her about that before we kicked off, which is why she references him uh, a few times in the interview. I just thought I'd clear that up. Uh, so, so now you've got the full story. Let's get to it. Let's find out about Sabine's story, Finders Keepers. And we start, as always, with what she sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. Well, I work in one of two places, which is, um, and they're sort of seasonal. So I either work in my sitting room, which I am sitting in now because the house is so hot. This is the coolest room, which is, um, we've got most of those, you know, I live in London and most Victorian houses have got that knocked through double sitting room thing now. But I kept the back sitting room. I've got three kids. And when they were little, this room was always described as mum's nice room. It's the sort of room that basically they were never allowed in. Also didn't have a telly in, which in the old days meant that nobody ever went into it at all, which at least meant that it was sort of mine and kept sort of slightly, I know, there's no PlayStation and no toys and stuff. Anyway, they're all grown up now, so they're well, almost grown up, so that is less of an issue. But it is a green sitting room, with, um, and I sit on a very, very old green sofa with my feet up on the coffee table, <laughs> well, a sort of old bit of table. And I usually have, and in the winter, I would light a fire, and um, it's kind of... It's very important to me that my surroundings, particularly at certain points of the writing process, are clear and empty and a lot of all that procrastination stuff is about clearing it up before I sit down. And so this is, room has always been kind of kind of clear. And then conversely, in summer, usually I work in my bedroom, um, which has a tiny little balcony with doors onto the balcony, which I have open and a nice breeze and the trees right outside the window. And that's my summer um, spot but as I say today it's absolutely boiling so I'm in the sitting room because it's cooler and darker. Um, At what point did you decide to, to mix things up and you'd say right this will be my summer writing it sounds very luxurious this will be my summer writing place and this will be my my other parts of the year. <laughs> summer room I know there's no study I'd like you to realize Dan there's no special study it's just trying to adapt the house my husband basically works in the kitchen. He's a writer too. Um, so that room's gone. There are people everywhere else. So it's really just these two rooms. Um, what do I decide? I think it's, um, I like, to, I really have to, I want to feel cosy in winter. So this is sort of, it's, you know, I like, as I say, I light a fire and I, it's part of the, what I, one of my processes is really this kind of little, all these kind of ceremonies I have to do before sitting down. It's all about procrastination and kind of forcing myself to sit down and do the, do the job um and I don't know this I like I suppose it's light in the summer my bedroom is much lighter and it's a nice place to be because of that reason um but I've always worked on my bed even as a student I worked on my bed and in fact I've noticed my daughter who was going to be doing her GCSEs and isn't I know that she does the same even though she has a desk in her room because um this telltale ink stains all over the duvet cover which so reminds me of my childhood the ink stains on the duvet cover but um, I like to be very comfortable as well. So um, I bought myself a desk. I used to have back problems and I've spent ages choosing this little desk I thought would be really lovely. And I've squeezed it into this sitting room. Um, and now it's just sitting there completely unused. I've never, ever sat at it. <laughs> I did try once. I sat and thought, oh, I'm a writer and I'm sitting at my little desk and I'm going to write a novel now. And the sofa sort of, you know, cried to me. And so I've now, you know, I came over and slumped. I'd already got a cat and a dog somewhere um, in the mix too. So, aside from aside from the desk and the dogs and the cats, you, you said you said you like you like to be very comfortable when you're writing. Now we're not that type of podcast, but what what do you tend to wear? What do you tend to wear when you do write? Are you someone who 
uh, thinks, well, a writing day is a work day. I'm going to set myself up. Or are you perfectly fine to kind of chill around in lounge pants? I pretty well lounge. I mean, I'm not one of those pyjama people in terms of writing because I've always have to get up. I have, as I say, I walk the, walk the dog. So I'm usually just whatever I'm wearing in terms of walking the dog. Jeans and a T-shirt, basically. Um, I sometimes do think, oh, I must have some workwear. People need workwear. You know, I'm, I'm, I love all those, you know, the new Sunday newspaper supplements. I love all oh, the workwear. How nice. And sometimes I've even, I mean, I used to work in an office and I, it took me a long time when I adjusted to working at home to realise that actually you just don't need any of those kind of slightly smartish clothes. I don't, you know, moving forward, maybe far fewer people in the world will anyway. Anyway, no. If I were to walk into your well, your bedroom or, or your lounge when you're writing, would I have any clues as to to what story that you're telling? Is there a, is there post-it notes everywhere? Have you got research books? It's so interesting because um, you just mentioned Robert Harris, and I once read him say that he has a snooker table in his study, in which which is covered in yellow post-it notes of where the plot is going. And um, I did a an event in with an Indian writer whose name I can't remember now, but he he said that he had. It, absolute flow charts he was an econo- economist who then turned to writing thrillers and he had flow charts of what happens in every single scene whereas everything's on my computer I suppose it's all on the laptop um my google search is always very interesting I'm sort of sometimes I think oh my gosh I really hope nobody is going to ever look at my google search and think that it says anything about the inside of my brain but you know how to, the very very first novel I wrote has somebody who's strangled in it so about, you know, what does a strangulated body look like? What is petechi? Which are those tiny little dots that people get when they have been strangled? Without getting into your routine too much just yet, I'm curious about the um, the rituals that you said, just ways of procrastinating. So right before you go and start writing, when, when you're about to begin your day, uh, you sit down, you've got your laptop, everything's on there. Talk us through these little rituals that you need to get to. Yeah, well, I haven't sat down yet, Dan. You've got ahead of me. No, I don't sit down. So if I'm actually writing a novel, so, you know, there obviously there are different processes in the whole novel writing process, but the very early stages of writing chapter one and then beginning to write, that's the worst for me. That's when I'm at my most kind of ritualistic. So the room that I'm in has to be completely tidy. So um, if it's my bedroom and all the clothes that have been thrown all over the floor over the last few days are put away, if it's Monday, um, and if it's in the sitting room, then I've just cleared up all the newspapers and the books that I might have been reading and bits of mugs, and that's the first thing. Clarity, completely clean space. Then I light a candle. I've got various candles on the go. At the moment, I've got some from Aldi, which I, well, am, I, am I not allowed to advertise? No, it's Probably fine. Not, am I? Yeah, anyway, it's fine. Okay. Go for it. Aldi... <laughs> Aldi candles, £2.50, very good. Um, I always have a candle and then I have to have my cup of coffee. So and the cup of coffee has to be ready, perfect for drinking, not too cold to start. So in the past, I've made the mistake of making a cup of coffee, sitting down and then thinking, oh, I must do this and pottering around. And then my coffee is just too cold. It's not hot enough. I have to. So then I'll either drink it or yeah, I'll drink it and then I'll wait a few minutes and I'll go make myself another one. It's all, and maybe even a piece of chocolate. It's all about putting off sitting down. It's really strange. It's like I can't bear to do it. I feel like my brain has to be in it. But I think it is part, I think it is sort of important. It is a kind of letting go of everything that's happened until that moment. You know, it's letting go of all the other admin and house stuff and family stuff and other sort of work stuff it's about kind of sort of getting the brain ready it's a bit like putting earplugs and an eye mask on for sleeping it's the same sort of thing oh and I've missed out a bit which is that I then put the headphones the noise cancelling headphones that I'm um wearing now for um I put them on and 
I have various pieces of music which change for each book, not related to the book. Um, and I listen to those pieces of music really over and over again. It's, uh, it's strange. It's, they have to be certain types of music. They can't be... They have things I love, so I can re I can play them and replay them, but I can't love them too much, so I get too distracted by them. There are some that I've always, always listened to, and I come back to if I'm very stuck. So Mozart's Requiem is something that I used to listen to myself, listen even as a student when I was doing an essay. Um, and I go back to that, and I have quite a lot of classical music, but also, in fact, it always used to be classical music, because I don't, in our house, we don't listen to classical music much, everybody is. As, you know, we all love music, but not so much classical music. But I have this sort of private classical music working thing going on. But also various other types of pop music as well I can listen to. Um, but I have to, when I'm writing the novel, it's the same ones over and over again. They can't be, it can't be too wide because the music has to be familiar enough in my head that it's not distracting me. At the moment, I'm beginning to write a new novel and I'm not at the actual writing stage. I'm still at the kind of planning and plotting. So it is a sort of slightly more monkey brain activity anyway. But I've been choosing the wrong music and it's the wrong music because I keep thinking, oh, that's good. Oh, I must see what else, what I'm going to, you know, that was reminded me of this. I might go listen to that. And, uh, it's strange. It's, it's, just, it's a distraction. Um, whereas... Uh, I mean, if I look at my playlist for the last book, do you want that much detail? I would love it. I was just about to ask, give me an ex uh, not not classical music because I can kind of get the vibe, but um, not many not many writers I've spoken to write with that with music that has lyrics in it. So go for it. Yeah, I know exactly, and it's new to. I mean, it's new in the last two books. Um, so I suppose I listen to the same. I can't listen to two. It has to be the same um, artist over and over again. So. Um, so for the last book, I listened to a lot of Danny Wilson. I don't know if you're familiar with Danny Wilson. You know, I'm, I'm of a certain age. No, I'm no, I'm not. But I'm, I'm I want to know. <laughs> yeah, and um, Prefab Sprout. Lots of Prefab Sprouts. The Silver Seas. I mean, I don't know any of these bands. Roddy Frame. They're, it's not so much about the type of music. I don't think. I think it's that it's music that I know well, and um, the change of song isn't going to jolt me. Um, maybe it's a certain type of cheerfulness. Can I ask you this? You mentioned you've only started doing this for the last two books. What what happened? Why why did you suddenly feel the need to to switch things up? And, and it's quite a sea change just su to suddenly have have a lot of music in your ears. Why did you make that decision? Um, I think it was a practical thing, which is our neighbours had massive amount of building work. <laughs> And so I left the house and went to a cafe. And um, one day I forgot, and I would take my headphones and I would play music. And one day I forgot my headphones and they were play They had a playlist and it was music, I suppose. I, I can't remember what was necessarily on the playlist, but it was um, not too bad. A rumour, there was quite a lot of rumour. Do you know rumour? Um, uh, and I think... Yeah, it was, it was Rumour. I was listening to Rumour in the cafe working, realised, oh, I can do this. Went home, downloaded the album, listened to it, worked with it. And, and then I sort of got into, I think it must be, it must be a deeply psychological thing, which is that you then associate that music with getting into a certain brain space. I mean, I used to do a lot of knitting. And um, if, I, if I'd been doing some knitting and then put it down, and I used to knit in front of the telly, and I would then... If I, if I put it down for a month or so and picked it up, I would remember what I was watching telly the last time I picked up. And there's a, must be, it must be a very, 
you know, everybody was, it must be some kind of association thing. Let me ask you this with the association thing. I wonder if this were to happen in the reverse. You've got these traditions now. Uh, how good do you reckon you'd be at writing if tomorrow they all went away? How able would you be able to just sit down and write if you had no coffee, no candles, no music? I mean, fine, probably. Honestly, probably fine, Dan, because actually a lot of this is to do with getting going. And once you've got going, then the novel and the characters and the writing is taking over. And weirdly, when I'm editing or rewriting, none of this stuff is as important. It's all about trying to I think it's about trying to block stuff out. It's really about trying to block out the rest of the world, the rest of my life, trying to just absolutely, like with a telescope, funnel down into this one place, one character, one world, or whatever it is that I'm concentrating on on that day. And and I, I think it's a sort of trick. It's really just a trick, and I probably would get through it, I suppose. I mean, when I finish a particular novel, I can't listen to those music for a, for a long, long time. I, I remember I once when I was little got very ill after eating some donuts and I couldn't eat donuts for about 20 years after that. And it's the same thing. And the music is sort of associated with the stress of it and the anxiety of it. And it's strange, isn't it? Is it you're not really not normal people don't do this? <laughs> Here's a question that I don't think I've ever asked an author before. Uh, and it comes from you saying about being getting the telescope out focusing in cancelling everything else out when you are in that zone it's just you the story and your keyboard do you find writing hard no isn't that terrible I shouldn't say that I find thinking about what to write really hard but the actual writing I don't find hard at all what do you mean by thinking about what to write before you've even got going yeah so somebody once said that the best Actually, back to Robert Harris. It was that article that Robert Har- about Robert Harris that the, the best way to write, the easiest way to write, is not to think that you're creating something, but to think that you're describing something that's already happened. You're reporting something that's whatever that already happened. And Robert's a former journalist, and I, and I am too. So I suppose that what really rang a bell with me. And so when I'm planning and plotting and thinking what's going to happen now, that I find hard. But if I and then I think, oh, I've made this happen. Oh, is that the right thing to happen? Then I get in the puzzle and muddle. But if, I've, if I'm confident that what is, I've decided is going to happen is the right thing, then I find it very easy. I hate plotting, though. I hate plotting. But once I've plotted, the writing is a breeze compared to not. I mean, if, if I'm trying to write a scene, I mean, I've really learned this. If I'm trying to write a scene and I just can't make it work, it's because I don't really know what I want to say or what's supposed to be happening or what the characters are feeling or thinking or what, what quite the right mechanism for moving the plot on is. Okay, two cups of tea in bed. Do you want that with the papers? Um, and then usually when we're not in a strangely altered world, um, in fact, I don't anymore. I used to have to get my kids up and get them to school, but actually even one who's still at school does that on her own but anyway so I'm out of the house usually by eight um and with the dog and I go for a, an hour's walk and then I um sometimes have a friend a coffee with a friend who will never ask me what my work is the people that I don't walk my dog with don't even sort of really off I mean they might occasionally and they're my close friends but they it's as if that's my work is a totally separate thing it's an interesting little aspect of my life I always think anyway come back to the house um then feed the dog then sit down in either my bed well tidy and make a fire and make my bed 
tidy the bedroom or tidy the sitting room and then sit down and with a cup of coffee and then start work. And I will, when I'm writing a novel as opposed to editing or rewriting a novel, then I tell myself I have to write a thousand words five days a week. Sometimes if it's, if I'm on a tighter schedule, seven days a week, but I have to write a thousand words and I can't leave the spot. I mean, I can leave the spot, but I can't put my laptop away for the day unless I've done a thousand words and I'm afraid I'm terrible so sometimes the thousand words come really easily and and I think they're good and sometimes it's just agony and each one is hard but if it's really hard I I will at some point give myself permission to write rubbish and I just think right I just got to get it done I'll just write some rubbish and sometimes those that rubbish is actually the best words that I write it's interesting but um and sometimes the ones that you really labor over I think I end up cutting too much description usually. Um, And then, yeah, so sometimes, so there's no singly similar day because sometimes those thousand words is done by 12 and sometimes it's not done until I go to bed at night. Um, When they are done, when the thousand words are finished for the day, how good are you, uh, how good are you at switching off? Are you, are you quite good at at guilt-free being able to do other things? I feel overwhelmed with self-satisfaction and sort of think I'm amazing to have written a thousand words. I, you know, so self-congratulatory. I'll go and have a bath and maybe watch something or go for another walk or meet a friend. I mean, there are very few days when the whole day is free. Um, and then slowly the doubts come in and I go back to it and think I'm a worst person and the worst writer in the world and everything I've written is rubbish and I don't know what to do next. And I mean, a lot of the beginning of the day's work is actually cutting out and crossing out what I've written the day before. Um, so it's a sort of strange process of sort of thinking that everything is fine and I'm really good at it. And then other times just thinking and almost in the same breath thinking it's all rubbish. It's strange. I think it's quite familiar. When it is tough on, on the days when you are having trouble just getting one more word out, what helps you through? If you, apart from the music and the fire and the candles, have you got any little things that just help you? Uh, to help me through it? Um I mean, I, as I say, I used to be a journalist and um, the sense of a deadline helps. I, I'm very good at just thinking it has to be done. It's, it's like a sort of, I mean, nothing's going to happen. If I don't write my thousand words, it's like nothing, you know, the world isn't going to end. And also, if you don't deliver a book on time, you, know, you never ever read a bad review saying this book was delivered two years late. People do deliver books late. Um, and yet for me, it sort of seems unbelievably important that I deliver everything bang on time. And so I suppose that's my trick, really, of just thinking it's a day's work. It's work. Sometimes, you know, I do think this is just my job and I'm very lucky to have it and get your ass into gear, go and just do it. How, how long does it tend, to, even when you're focusing so strictly on deadlines, how, does it, how long does it tend to take you to see a book through from the very first idea you have to the moment you hand it in how long will you give yourself so this book that I'm writing now will is due in July next year 21 and I have to start it in September I think um and I will write the first draft by March April March or April of next year and then I will try and then I'll do loads of rewrites over and over again and that's a different process if um, when it's not the first draft, the second and third draft, I'm much better. At, I'm much better at focusing, and I don't. And I look back at my thousand words a day and just don't realize. And I think to myself, you don't realize how easy life was. You know, gosh, weren't you lucky to be able to sing a thousand words a day? Because when I'm rewriting, I'm doing 
I work all day. I get up and I work. And it doesn't when I'm rewriting. I don't care what the room I'm like. You know, it doesn't. It can be. It doesn't can be messy. It doesn't. It doesn't have to be a fire. I don't have to have a fresh cup of coffee. I just feel yeah. so. I mean, it's much more sort of. And that's because I've got the whole thing inside and I'm worried about forgetting it. It's a weird thing. It's like I'm sort of learning it. It's like a cramming for an exam, I sometimes think, a rewrite. Because the only by absolutely knowing what the sort of force behind you is can you sort of go on and carry on shaping it. It's, whereas when you're writing the first draft, you know, when, I read back, when you read back on the first draft, it's fascinating how some of the writing is slow, some is fast, some is sort of, you can tell I was in quite a good mood and other days the book seems sort of gloomier and obviously the t- a tone of a book can't be to do with the mood of the writer it's got to be the force of the story so the rewriting thing is much more intense and I feel like I'm working much harder funnily enough and I find it much harder and um I get very cross with people for just you know I'm, I'm delighted if the phone rings when people ring and say oh am I disturbing you on my first draft I'm all like no no you know just do they can tap for hours? Whereas this, if I'm on a rewrite, I can't even bear it. If you know, I hear somebody walking past the door, I just think, "Oh, they're going to distract me! They're going to distract me!" And I'll forget everything. It'll all go. Why do you think you can't remember that when when you are writing your first draft? You say uh, when you're when you're rewriting, you're looking back at your first draft self, thinking, "No, you've got it so lucky. It's only a thousand words. Why can't you remember that? You're you're quite a few books down there. Well, I can, I suppose. It's just that it's. Is that as I was saying, you know, I, the, the main issue is that I think the first draft is it's harder because it's coming from nothing. Whereas once you've got the second draft, there's something there. It's um, so it's more work, and yet it's less hard. In a, I know I'm contradicting myself, but the first draft, it's the choices. I think I find so hard. It's having to make decisions for the first draft. You know, is this going to happen? Is that going to happen? And Will it be better? Uh, you know, there's a sense that there's the right answer, which of course there isn't. But it is like going back up a river. You're going, you're starting from this big thing, and you're going down these little tributaries, and sometimes those little tributaries are going to peter out before you get anywhere interesting. So you go up and down quite a lot. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, 
but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Now, before we get back to it with Sabine and hear more about Finders Keepers, just a very quick reminder of all the ways that you can help us out. You can do it over on Patreon. If you enjoyed the bonus episode, the uplit bonus episode at the start of the week, and if you've learned some amazing tips in over 115 episodes that has helped the way that you write, you can pay it back by paying us some money if you fancy. Only a little mind. Just a dollar or so a month really helps out. And to show our thanks, you can get all sorts on there from small bits of merch to actually having your book sponsor this show. Uh, so I guess if your book launch has been slightly dampened due to lockdown, uh, well, let us help you get it out there, get you a few more clicks. Uh, just support us and pledge what you can over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Also, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcast if that's how you listen. I saw a review there recently that was annoyed that I only asked for good reviews. They were frustrated that I said only five star reviews, please, or don't bother, um, which made me laugh a little bit. I mean, come on, you can write whatever you like. I just don't understand why you would spend time writing something that's a little bit negative. Doesn't help us out. Just wastes what you're doing. But, you know, it's up to you. <laughs> I don't want to be, I don't want to come across as too snarky, by the way. I would love any form of review. Just, you know, I prefer the five-star ones. Come on. Uh, also, you can give us a follow on Twitter. We are at WritersPod on there. Do that, and it will help you stay up to date with what's going on on the show. Right, let's get back to it with Sabine Durrant then, talking about Finders Keepers. In this half, we talk about the plotting and the moment when the characters are threatening to ruin everything that you thought you knew and take your story completely different. You can find out how Sabine gets around that by knowing everything about them before she starts. Also, we talk about the flow of the story and keeping readers engaged and reading. And we pick things up talking about where she got the very first idea for Finders Keepers. So this book, about quite a few years ago so most of my books come from a single observation or a single moment and they just sit around in the back of my head waiting I suppose to germinate at some later stage and this has got a little anecdote behind it which is that I basically next door's rabbit got into our garden and our dog at the time um chased this rabbit round and round the garden it was awful children were screaming crying um parents were renting their clothes it was just dreadful anyway the rabbit then the dog didn't kill the rabbit but the rabbit went missing so we carried on searching for this rabbit I felt very guilty and responsible and in the end I took a kind of delegation of small children round the block to the garden that backs onto our house and um it's you know ours isn't the, the house our houses on my road is behind parallel to quite a large road but it has very big houses on it with um big gardens so, and it's quite a long way to get round the block to work out exactly what house it was that backs onto ours. But anyway, we went round, these weeping children and me, and knocked on the door of this house that was very tatty on the outside, but big and grand. And this woman came to the door and she was um, very nicely dressed um, and well-spoken and in her sort of, I suppose, 50s or 60s. And she didn't want us to let us in the house. You could just tell she she couldn't bear it. She was t- so torn between wanting to let us into the house to rescue them, see if the rabbit was in the garden, but not wanting us to. Anyway, in the end, she it wasn't a, you know we couldn't push ourselves on her, but she did let us in. We went through the house, and I was so shocked at the state of this house because it's a lovely on the outside house, and she was you know normally presenting woman, and yet and the house was just so 
crammed with stuff. And of course, I've seen there's some other there's some hoarders who live in another street, and the house is piled up with newspapers and wood and all sorts of stuff. And you could see them around; they're kind of eccentric looking. You know that they are um, hoarders in a much more obviously eccentric way. Whereas this woman, she said something about, "Oh, I'm just having a clear out," and you know, she so clearly wasn't having a clear out. The house was just beyond that. Anyway, we didn't find the rabbit, and we went home. But and I've seen her. I used to see her around a little bit, and and. Um, and I, then you'd go to the end of my garden, I could peer over the fence occasionally because the garden was extraordinary. It was just totally wild, um, but also filled with stuff. Um, and so I think that just sort of image of this woman, you know, I'm quite interested in the you know, differences between appearances and reality and the fronts people put on. And also that kind of the awkwardness of us going round looking for this rabbit and her polite sense of politeness for her neighbours. I don't know, it just, it's one of those, it just absolutely appeals to me as that kind of social, the social contrast and awkwardness and just also this sort of sense that this, you know, on the surface, ordinary looking house with ordinary looking life inside was actually something quite other to, than that. So that was the trigger really for it. And um, So rather ambiguously then, you, you've got this tiny trigger moment, this this idea that you're you're curious about what goes on, you know, behind the locked doors of someone that you know. Um, as a writer, what do you do next? Before you sit down and you start typing away, you've already gone through that you hate plotting, but I, I get the impression you do quite meticulously plot. What do you do when you've got that very first slither? How do you turn that seed into a tree? I think about a relationship. And in that case, I thought about, I suppose it, it wasn't me, but I was thinking about, you know, um, the relationship with a neighbour, um, the, the sort of the collision between two different worlds, two different people. Um, and because I write thrillers, I was just trying to think about um, how that relationship could be made more intense, more interesting, what it, you could draw out from it. And... Um, I mean, I'm really interested in the relationship between the neighbours, but because I write thrillers, I also know there has to be something much more visceral and dramatic going on. Um, so I then think about a, a sort of arc of a plot. And also, you know, there's the whole thing about... I started writing thrillers after I read um, a, a book by Rosamund Lupton. And her first, she's just written this brilliant one called Three Hours, but it was a book called Sister. She wrote her first novel and... Um, I really enjoyed it because it was, I mean, what really intrigued me about it was about relationships and then it had this fantastic twist. It was pre-Gone Girl, but, you know, that thing about the great twist that really thumps you in the solar plexus. So the idea of the twist, although we now got a bit bored of twists because they've been so overdone in this kind of surge of psychological thrillers, um, it is satisfying to have a plot that doesn't quite hurt. I mean, the whole, you know, best plots have something that changes your perspective on life and the world and also changes your perspective on what's been going on in the book itself. So I then think, I can't give any too much away, obviously, but then I think about a way in which something could be twisted from this relationship. And that's, I suppose, I think it's weird, isn't it? I don't really know. I mean, it's for the one I'm writing now, um, it's about a con artist and um, a, grif a grifter. And um, so I was, for this one, I've been reading and 
watching and you know just lots about grifters and it's, it's been much more sort of straightforward research and I'd say I did a lot of research on hoarding um and the sort of psychological traits of people who might or damage of the people who might turn to hoarding as a sort of way of controlling their environment aside from that overarching plot that you've got then the notion that you do want to have a little twist that slightly skews how people have been viewing the story what what do you know about what you're writing before you sit down on on day one how how much of the story is actually in your head well hopefully all of it um, but the bit I like least, as I say, is that plotting. And I know that if I plotted it really carefully, um, then it would be much easier to write. And it always goes wrong when I get confused in my head. And, you know, sometimes I decide to change. I plot it out and then I decide to change anyway because I just suddenly something else occurs to me that is a better idea. So I don't have to go back and change it again, go back over what I've written and check that it's sort of that the right clues and distractions are in the right place. Um, but yes, generally I know pretty well all of it. My second thriller, which was um, Remember Me This Way, is about a woman who's convinced that her husband is still alive and um, has been killed in, a, in an accident and or apparently killed in an accident. And, she, and I wrote that novel not in my really clear in my head whether he was or he wasn't first time round. And that was a disaster in terms of the writing because... You know, it just meant that it was it was un, the first draft was unsatisfying because you know, as a reader, you want to know is he alive or is he dead, and I had to make it, I had to choose my path for that, and I re- that was quite a good lesson subsequently for thinking you have to be clear in your head or else the reader is going to be irritated by you. No matter how plotted you are, at some point, I'm sure nearly every single writer thinks, actually, this my character wouldn't do, you know, by the time, by the more you write, the more you think, actually, they wouldn't do that at this point. This is, just doesn't ring true with the person that I've got, that I've created and sort of got to know. So what I do beforehand is I um, will have a file on my laptop, which is the names of the characters, and I, I will just literally write everything I can think or make up about them, what they look like, um what their history is, what their past is, where they went to school, the relationship with their parents. Um, and that at least provides a little bit of a sort of steering mechanism. Also, um, physically, I like to have a kind of image in my head. And I usually start, funny enough, with somebody that I know. I mean, not some, you know, somebody... Would it be a famous person? No, not really. No, not a fa- Usually it's just somebody I've seen around physically. Um, I mean, I, the one that really still sticks in my head because I occasionally still bump into him is there's a policeman in my first novel who I quite enjoyed writing and very early on I wanted a particular sort of physical type. And my kid was playing a lot of football and there was a dad on the sidelines. I just thought, oh, and he was wearing this very long padded coat um a sort of proper dad on the sidelines padded coat and I thought oh yeah that's perfect for my character and and it was partly the way that guy looked the dad looked but also the type of person who would wear a long navy blue padded coat because he's on the sidelines of the football match a lot and he knows he's going to be so that and occasionally I see that guy and I still think oh gosh you're my detective sergeant and Uh, aside from the characters then that you've got these this document all about them what form what physical form is your plotting taking before you started telling the story Uh, have you got like a like a timeline or what's going on the plotting is basically on my laptop um a file saying you know plot of novel 
chapter one and I were in this in this chapter this is going to happen this is and even bits of dialogue and then this will happen and literally chapter two then this will happen this will happen and when I set off starting a novel I'm usually impatient to get going because nothing is as satisfying as actually writing proper words so usually I do cheat a bit but I do try and have chapter one chapter two and at least to half the novel and then second half of the book I might just write second half of the book basically it's going to go in this direction and this is going to happen and this is going to be the twist or um but yes, all on my laptop, nothing out and about, no stickers, nothing. You're, you're writing a psychological thriller. Um, and and you, you said earlier on, I mean, that must be quite hard now because since Gone Girl and Girl on the Train, uh, there are quite a lot out there. How much thought are you giving to the standard tropes and tricks that this genre kind of requires to keep the listener, uh, to keep the reader uh, reading that, that people open up a thriller and a psych thriller and expect some stuff. How much thought are you giving to these tricks that are going to keep them with you? Uh, I mean, I, would, I suppose I would take, you know, I'd cavil with the word tr- uh, tricks because actually it's partly tricks, but they, it's not, in a way, it's truth. So it's the trick, trickery I don't like. So I hate it when you, something seems like just always for the sake of it you know it has to be true to the character whatever happens has to be true to the character um the twists are satisfying if you if a twist seems too kind of you know ridiculous and that doesn't work anyway it's just not going to work as a kind of narrative with a for a as a narrative compulsion um i think you never lie to the reader so those are the, i mean these things i believe quite strongly anyway whatever kind of i mean I, um book you're writing um you want the reader to want to turn the pages and that's true whether you're reading a thriller or any novel you know any novel you need to want to turn the next page and see what happens next or what the next kind of development in the character's psyche is um so in some senses um I don't really like writing too much anything too gruesome um and so I tend to avoid that if I can anyway um you know, there are these various things that, again, partly for psychological thrillers, but for all novels that you, you know, there's that kind of five act motion that most written forms have. Um, so that the novel has a kind of it rises and then there's a sort of crisis and then there's a dipping away and then there's a denouement. And that's basically, I suppose, I have a sort of instinctive sense of what that is. Um I try and avoid that kind of the, the twist in which, oh, it wasn't him all along, it was her, or, you know, I don't, that doesn't, you know, this. most readers, because of the more psychological thrillers that people read, the more they're thinking when they start a book, what's the most, who's the most likely person to have committed this crime, therefore it's going to be them. I mean, I do it myself when I'm reading or watching thrillers, you know, you're, you're just, your brain is constantly kind of, thinking ahead well they want me to think it's that so therefore it must be this and in fact that that in itself becomes quite an interesting thing to play with with the reader you want the re- I, I think also the reader wants to be always be a little bit ahead a tiny bit ahead um i think that's satisfying in a, in a thriller to think oh i think it's going to be them i think it's going to be them i think this is what's happening and then if it if as long as it's not too far ahead if you think it right from day page first page then how do you possibly do that as an author no how, sorry how do you possibly do that as an author how are you almost triple guessing the reader here how are you how are you saying well the reader i've got i've got a double i've got a, a twist with the reader's expectations but i also want the reader to be a little bit ahead of my character and what's going on how are you at all writing that um i think it's to do with richness of character 
partly. I think as the characters are really properly interesting as characters, then that helps. Um, so therefore, you know that the reader is going to be thinking, oh, you know, I'm, I'm always interested in grey areas. So is this person, you know, this, I don't believe, the, you know, this, the best writing doesn't have goodies and baddies in it. Although, I mean, that can be satisfying in lots of ways, I suppose. Um, but, you know, is this, per, you know, I, I, the thing also, I, I suppose, is do I like this person? I don't like this person, but I also do like this person. That's something that's, you know, tricky people always interest me. And I think that that as long as you get if you get the character my novel lie with me has a very unattractive male narrator who's sort of sexist and rather full of himself and and yet as the novel progresses what i'm trying to do is draw what i was, was trying to do is make other people the reader have sympathy with him and actually will him on and want him to be okay despite the fact that early on you i'm hoping that they're blenching at the things that he says and does and I suppose that's the same sort of thing. It's just layering complications. And so... At a very simple technical level with that guy that you described where you're you're going to paint him to be a a piece of work um, and then you want the readers to, to to actually kind of understand him. How are you... Uh, a very, very simple technical level. How are you doing that? I think very simple technical level. There are things that are... Um, universally make people sympathetic and that is um random acts of kindness um kindness to animals um pat the dog um and also self-awareness i think that's and that's really why i like first person narrative to play with how self-aware the character is the main character is so if lot as a sense of humor um and also in that book, by putting him in positions where you also don't like the people that he's with. So in fact, in the contrast of the other people, he is the, under, the underdog, I suppose, Dan. I suppose that's a very straightforward, universal trick. Um, you know, people do tend to root for an underdog. Lastly, my last question. Uh, we, we've spoken about genre. I'm, I'm aware that you have written kind of various genres, really. I mean, you've written books for, for teen girls, haven't you? Uh, did you start off writing... I don't know, do they call it women's fiction? Women's fiction, yes. And my first two novels were women's fiction. I didn't, I mean, I just thought I was writing fiction, but that was very much how they were marketed. Um, Yes, that's how I started. But uh, yeah, and then I wrote, I was commissioned to write the teen, the books for the teenage, teenagers by Puffin. I'm sort of anti the sense of genre as a thing. I mean, I, these books are, the books I'm writing now are, marketed as psychological thrillers and they are I suppose I mean I think Finders Keepers is less generic and also Lie With Me I think they've got less generic as I've gone along um I mean my next novel is more of an adventure in some ways um it's possibly slightly less dark it's going to be set in south France um normally I write in south about southwest London which is where I live um I think it's got me yearning to go to the south of France and get out of my house but um have I got other genres I just write the best book I can and yeah see where that takes me really and that is it for this week's writer's routine if you enjoyed it please do let people know over on apple podcasts and you can throw some change our way as well over at patreon.com forward slash writer's routine if you want to grab a copy of the book by the way uh, please do that by using the link that's in the podcast notes it's over at writersroutine.com as well just that'll help us get a kickback 
at no extra cost to you. So it's win for you, win for Sabine, win for us as well. That's writersroutine.com. Now, next week, by the way, I'm very cautious to talk up who we have on next week, just in case something goes wrong. But all things being well, uh, next week we'll talk to Sophia Money Coots all about her new uplit romance novel, The Wish List. I will see you then with another writer's routine. Bye. <laughs> Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.